0: Yeah. Anyways, why don't we kick things off? Yeah, um sure. Ben, whenever you're ready. uh Sorry,
1: something you wanted to say? Yeah, yeah. I just want to say really quick. Did I uh, did I tell you guys that um, I burned two thousand calories last night?
2: Uh, do Do you want to share this? Or? Yeah, I, we I, just I, ate I burned, pizza, <laughs> hype, man. No, no. I burned
1: I burned two thousand calories last night. Yeah, but that's the last time that I fall asleep while baking brownies. I tell you
2: that much. Jeez. Oh, <laughs> Singers. <laughs> I can't... <laughs>
1: You're listening to What's That Noise, the podcast that pursues matters of confusion, however and whatever that means.
2: I was invited, it was actually an interesting, the whole story is an interesting one because I had just arrived at King's um, and I was an invited to... Uh, guest uh, at a conference at the University of Vermont by people I didn't know. Um, and and it was a, a subject that was a little bit peripheral to what I do, because it was predominantly on temporary foreign workers. Um, and so, you know, although that's related to border issues, and I'm, and I'm aware of it, it's not something exactly what I do. But I was invited. And I thought, okay, I'm going to go Vermont and be interesting and so on. And while we were there, it's, it's pretty common like at a particularly a small workshop like that that at the end you you're given something whatever it's mm-hmm. like a notepad and some pens from the university or something but in this case we were all given uh, a dvd uh, of a documentary that was made by a uh, recently um, um, deceased a member of faculty of the geography faculty glenn elder and it was called border under construction and you know i i took it home and thought okay this is interesting and i watched it and i have to say i've There's probably more courses I have taught on the border since then who have seen it than who have not. Really, eh? Um, Because to me, it it sort of says almost everything I often want to say in 50 minutes. Uh, So it's about these two communities which are one community. So Stansted, Quebec and Derby Line, Vermont, which is effectively one town, but the border runs through it. And for a very long time in its history i mean the border early on has some interesting moments particularly with things like prohibition and so you know there's areas <laughs> where like a, a home was built you know, awesome. straddling the border and it was on a nice hillside so they could roll whiskey kegs down the back and so on. You drink
1: in the living room, huh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah,
2: that was actually a joke when uh, in the film, actually, the, the current owner takes people through and, and she makes some some jokes about that. And then, of course, an unfortunate one for Canadians and says that the garbage collection is from Canada. They take <laughs> all our garbage, which as Canadians, I think we're used to those kind of uh, lines from Americans. <laughs> but the predominant thing with the film is is looking at this community after 9-11. So after the events of September 11th, and I know I feel like I have to say a, a moment about that because um, <laughs> I know encountering my students, they're often like, excuse me, Dr. Muller, we weren't alive. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, that's a scary thought. Right, yeah. and, and so uh, that, that, that created this whole, you know, the first thing that happened was the Kennedy West border was closed. In response to those events, uh, to to the terrorist attack in in New York and Washington. And so this community, what the story tells is how the state kind of enters itself back into this community and forces itself in a sense upon the people in this community who saw themselves as one who would have crossed the street to have tea with their neighbor, who played on the same baseball teams, who went to their civic centers, so the public library, the theater, and so on, which were actually intentionally built on the border. So those buildings, the border actually runs. So if you go to the public library, there's a taped line on the floor um, that is the border. Um, And they did that intentionally to say, like, this doesn't mean anything to us when they did that. And, you know, 2001 rolls around those events, and suddenly... You know, years later in 2008, we have the Western Hemisphere Travel Initiative and you need a passport to cross that border, which for those people means that to go across the street to have tea, you need to now drive down the street go through a port of entry facility with your passport and then drive back down the street again just to have tea with your what, neighbor.
1: What, what what the border actually physically look like there? Like, I mean, like you said, like so, so let's say, you know, Ethel wants to get together with Doris and, and have that nice cup of tea. Uh, would there like be literally a wall now put, put up or like, like, could they theoretically just say, all right, I'm just going across the road. Don't tell the border guards or something like that. You
2: know? <laughs> so, I mean, in terms of like some of those spaces, like certain streets and things, there is nothing like a wall or anything like that. Right. The center line of the street is marked. <laughs> so it's marked that that line is the actual borderline. In the downtown, there are actually, they've put planters up and things so you can no longer drive as freely because you may have parked to go to, you know, some burger shop and the parking lot was on the other side of the border. <laughs> and the problem is now what you're, you're sort of vignette of like, oh, whatever, I'm just going to have tea with Ethel. Well, no, the, the border patrol would show up at your house because really? you're, you're being surveilled. So yes. they're watching because this is a border. So this town, so if you just cross the street to go to Ethel's, well, the Border Patrol will show up with their lights flashing or Department of Homeland Security or any other of the, you know, many, many different kind of law enforcement agencies that operate in border regions in the United States. They'll show up um, and say, what's going on? You just crossed a border.
0: Wow. This is interesting on so many different levels. But one of the big reasons for me is that it's really Screwing with my idea of what a, a conventional border is. When I think about a border, I can't help but to hear Trump blabbering away in the background, <laughs> and and see some some horrific looking concrete wall with barbed wire fence. When I think about a border, that's what I tend to see. And you know, the occasion of us coming together, it, there's many occasions that are going on in the world, right? We we could talk about Palestine. We could talk about the West Bank. There's interesting stories that we should be talking about. I think right. when it comes to borders in the Gaza Strip. We could be talking about borders in, you know, Mexico, U.S. We could talk about them here. And it's really occurred to me that I I think there's a lot of different competing ways to to talk about the border. What the hell does that even mean anymore? What does the border even mean? And and here you are, Ben, telling us a story about this town, you know, that fundamentally its life had to change pre and post 9-11. And I got to ask you, man, if you don't mind. Is this the kind of story that you would tell your students to to get them thinking critically about the border back in the in the 2000s right after 9/11 for those that were born then and do you still continue to tell that story now? Is my follow-up question. What's changed really?
2: Yeah, I think I think you know what what it is is basically your first question which is, you know, what is a border is why I keep revisiting That video, Uh, and why it's as germane to conversations in the classroom and beyond. Now, as it was when I showed it to students, when I, you know, got it back from that conference and watched it and thought, oh, my God, I got to get this on in front of a class mm-hmm. that I still have to, because what that what it, it tells some really important things. The one point I think it tells that, especially if you haven't grown up right on a border like that, you, you probably don't necessarily intuitively know it, but that borders don't mean a lot to people who live in those regions. And you'll find this almost anywhere unless you're talking about a heavily militarized border. But sure. in many other cases, that border is just kind of, you know, it's an inconvenience. It's a, it's a marker. But it's not, you know, your shopping, your lifestyle, the sport teams, the churches, your mm-hmm. family connections. They all crisscross that border regularly. And that's the case we find around the world in many, many borders. But how the state doesn't want you To be thinking that because your allegiance will not be to the state if that's the kind of those daily practices are what you hold on to. And so as a result, the state has to do a bunch of things. In a sense, it has hard work to do to make you think, you know, in this town that actually that yellow line down the middle of the road is meaningful. Right. And how it does it is interesting. And it obviously does it in a whole, whole variety of ways, but some of them are are really blatant and obvious. When you say like about a, a border, you would imagine, well, something they did after nine eleven in Stansted and Turby Line is like they built a new port of entry facility that looks really ominous. Hmm. Um, because yeah, if you want people to say like this is real, well, what what's one of the things you do? You build a big building.
1: Right, right, right. And
2: and and something else and this was a really uh, crucial u.s policy after 9-11 you don't leave the border agents at the same border crossings for extended periods of time you shift them around because otherwise they become familiar because then it's like oh ethel you're here again you're just going across the street for tea aren't you right no you don't want that you want a new agent quite regularly who then just sees ethel as some person in a car approaching a port of entry do you have a passport or a nexus card
1: Wow. That's I mean, what's what's especially interesting to me as well in is having having lived in Niagara Falls for on the, on the Canadian side of Niagara Falls, seeing how blurry that border is by way of culture, you you, you couldn't pick out somebody from, you know, Tonawanda and somebody from the Canadian Ni- Niagara Falls uh, Canadian side of Niagara Falls uh you wouldn't necessarily physically look at them to, to, to say, oh, okay, I know exactly where you're from or, or anything like that. If they spoke, you might pick up a bit of an accent. But other than that, you're pretty much looking at it and you're pretty much saying, uh, you, you know, you're, that, that culture is very blurry right there. But the further you go into one side or the other, then, you know, especially into the Canadian side, you get quite a different mix from that point. And we used to joke around about going to Brock University that's what, 20 minutes from Niagara Falls, St. Catharines, 20 minutes from Niagara Falls, you would look and you would say, you're in a totally different world than Niagara Falls, right? You you would, you would look at that and you would say, oh my gosh, everybody is totally different here. This is more of a, a city built around the university rather than built around tourism, all the cultures and everything like that change. And so that's really interesting to me as well to think that there would be people who quite literally were just going back and forth. where. My guess would be the Quebec side would probably have a lot of Francophones versus the American side, which which probably didn't know what French was or or something like that. Like that, that's a really interesting, uh, uh, especially considering like you're looking at, you know, uh, a, a very very cultural, sig- culturally significant part of Canada versus a, a a very kind of cliche United States
2: of America type thing, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, in, in this particular case, it's more of an Anglo Is community. Is it? Very, okay, yeah, so, yeah, So, yeah. I mean, you don't have that, but still, I think all the the, the points remain. And then, you know, in, in your conversation, it made me think of something. So, I did I did my PhD in Belfast, Northern Ireland. Okay. Oh, my and, goodness. And... Um, you know this it's an interesting point because what you've said is so true I grew up um the, you know southern British Columbia so you know crossing the border as you say like it just wasn't really a, a big deal the people so on somebody who was from you know Watcom County versus somebody from Chilliwack no no one would know right Um, you know the kind of things we all knew is like that you would only buy ice cream at the dairy and the American <laughs> side and like only idiots got gas at not at the station on the U.S. side things like yeah, that yeah however you know you know, then, then I lived in in Belfast, Northern Ireland, and suddenly, you know, I, I remember sitting in a pub one night, and I was with uh, a few older fellas, and uh, I, I asked them about, you know, uh, that day. It was a Saturday, and I, and I had been with, uh, with a friend of mine. We had sort of walked to a certain area of town, and they were like, "Oh yeah, we don't we don't really know that area of town." And I'm like, oh, "Like you guys lived here your whole lives?" I'm like, "Yeah, we we don't go there." Um, and then they started talking about where they go, and it's effectively, you know. Um, Kind of like Masonville. Okay. If if your entire life, though, that's it. They they just
1: wouldn't wander anywhere else? You
2: wouldn't go anywhere else. And you would know if you went anywhere else, people would would recognize you immediately. Really? The, The way you pronounce some words, the way you looked, you would actually be discerned from someone else. Come on. So so we have this context where on the one hand, you're absolutely right. We talk about like these two huge countries, this huge border. And, you know, when we're in those borderlands, distinguishing people, it's kind of messy. We don't really know. And people are crisscrossing. But then you go to a place like Belfast and suddenly somebody from four blocks over, you're like, oh, it's one of those. You can tell by the way they pronounce their H. They didn't go to the same kind of schools as we did.
0: You used a term there that was really interesting. And I... I feel like I've come across it before with you, Ben, just by virtue of the fact that we research in similar circles and we have the same friends in the academy. But borderlands, what, what does that mean exactly?
2: Yeah, yeah. So that's within the research on, on borders, it tends to be called as an area of study borders and borderlands. The reason being that, that borders tend, when we talk about that, we're usually thinking about the line. We're thinking about, in a sense, A limit. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the state usually or someone or even we might talk about it in terms of property, a city limit, whatever, but it's a limit. Someone saying this is where that ends and something else begins. Borderlands speak much more of the kind of blurred cultural space that exists there. And I think we can see in many contexts, not just cultural, economic, social, you know, all sorts. I mean, the, the southern U.S. border is a really good example of that where you see a lot of work going into a border but also an incredibly rich borderland Mm -hmm. and that much of the kind of conflict in that space is between those two things, between shared messy cultures, overlapping interests, back and forth for generations, families that are intermixed, you know, some people on one side, some people on the other. And then, you know, as, as Tom said earlier, then we hear, you know, the yeah. former President Trump in our minds, or, or maybe it was you, and, you know, yelling about building a wall in, right. the, in the midst of that. So that's, you know, you're, you're putting that in the center of the borderland.
1: And, yeah. and you know, it just
2: dawned on me something
1: that I've got to ask you is, I, I mean, it, we have the political definition of what a border is. And then you mentioned the culture of the borderlands, but the political interested in, you know, measuring to the millimeter where their land starts and stops type thing. But then, I mean, even within Canada, for example, I'll go down to uh, the, the Toronto area and there's the Greek area. There's the, uh, you know, uh, uh, Little Greece and there's Little China and and there's, you know, all of these different, different areas. And it's kind of like even those almost have like this, although it's not written in stone, it's kind of like by code. No, 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 no. this is, you know, this is Little Portugal. You, the, everybody's Portuguese here and everybody. And, and now granted that wasn't, by any design specifically, apart from cultures getting together and recognizing right, we're on the Danforth, so that we'll, we'll just kind of all get together and share resources. But that would be considered, by your definition, somewhat of a border as well, wouldn't
2: it? A- absolutely, absolutely. I mean, you know, the, the original question when we ask, like, what is a border? Right. When I, when I, it's a great question, I ask it in my class, and I ask students to reflect on it, and, and in their reflection, think about their experience of borders. And, you know, what you're talking about in a city, you don't need to tell someone about that before. Mm -hmm. You can just send them off and they'll know what's happening. They'll walk and be like, hey, wait a minute. Like, I've clearly entered a new space somehow. Like, oh, there's a lot of flags from, from a certain country, perhaps, or you know, the restaurants have all changed or the language on some of the signs have changed or these different sort of things. So we know actually, so something is happening there. We know we've crossed something, Mm -hmm. some kind of threshold. It may not be that limit, that line, but it's clearly there's, there's a way in which we're suddenly in another space. And what is our experience? Well, I mean, I think in a lot of those cases, we might just say, well, it's like we get to experience a new culture. Right. Which in a lot of borderlands, it might be as well, but there could also be something else. And so if you ask students, tell me about an experience while someone says, oh, well, like my experience of the border is the time like my bag was searched and they discovered that, you know, I bought an extra bottle of rye or whatever. (laughs) Or someone else, you know, because I was wearing a, you know, hijab, I was pulled aside and I was asked questions for three hours in secondary inspection. And so we all of a sudden see all these other dynamics and you think that's what the border, it's all those things. So the border is yes, it's a simple thing where you know we are taxing and tariffing different product products than the neighboring country, or we have different notions of what constitutes risk, mm-hmm. and so we might take certain objects or certain products or certain people, as you know we have defined as dangerous, risky, etc., requiring um, more attention, um, or there might be ways in which we're like. You know, there's cultural practices that suddenly occur that that we're not familiar with, we don't like. You see this with the India-Pakistan border. These elaborate, like, performances that go on. Because I, I would say, you know, if I had to say, like, give me one word that, that the border is, I would say ritual. That, ritual? Yeah. What an interesting choice of I, words. I don't think
0: I ever would have come up with that on my yeah, own. Yeah, yeah. Like, even if I were to take your class... <laughs> That's why that I just was shows one of he, your students at one point. In
2: maybe time. that just shows how ineffective a professor <laughs> I am.
1: How <laughs> oh, did okay? Just a quick aside How did Tommy do in your class? Did he do okay?
2: He did very well did in, yeah, in, right. in the end.
1: <laughs>
0: I, I gotta tell a story. Oh, this could really spiral out of control. Uh, so, uh, the first time that uh, Ben. And I call him Ben. He's one of my best friends. You, you, my you guys wedding have card? no
1: idea. Just by the way, you have no idea how intimidating this is to, to have me mentioned, you know, I went to Brock University and then you guys have, yeah, well, I'm Dr. Ben and I'm Dr. Tom. And oh, well, well, I was touring the Turkish area of that school and doing <laughs> research through the old Vatican. Well, this story will
0: bring things down a notch for you because I mean, like I didn't have my PhD when I was one of his <laughs> suffering students. So ben had just come out from the west coast it was his first year teaching full-time at king's university college and uh, i was in a class called uh, critical security no it wasn't critical security studies it was american foreign american policy. foreign policy excuse me uh you and, guys and gotta
1: you guys gotta do better at naming your courses like you guys needed some pr help on that stuff for crying out loud <laughs> it's getting it's getting
2: better you know, is it? yeah it is improving it <laughs> yeah. depends who you talk to though yeah
0: so yeah, it was American foreign policy and and Ben was going to teach the second half. And the first half of that course, the first semester, the first term was taught by our late friend, Will McCurcher, really, really wonderful man. So just before the transition happened and around Christmas and Ben's getting ready to step on as the prof, take take the reins, we all go out for a drink, right? Get to know the new prof. And I was doing pretty well under Will McCurcher's wing. Like he he saw me as a student that wasn't that committed. Okay. I I did what I thought was expected of me and I did well okay. and I thought I'd have some fun with this guy so we were at the what was the name of the the bar again
2: I think it was the bungalow the, I think we were at the bungalow yeah.
0: and um a song came on and I I knew the song really well and I loved the song and I I challenged him a bit and I was like hey new professor guy you can name this song I'll buy you a pint of Guinness and what was your response Ben?
2: Well, well like, it, was, it was Cantaloupe Island, and I think it was at Madison Square Gardens. I think
0: Matt uh, yeah. Meathany. Uh, Come on, yeah. he 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 was able to name the date
2: of the recording. I was just gonna say it
1: gives you like uh, actually the album uh, photography was done by. Uh, <laughs> yeah.
0: So then, so then I was just shocked, and people laughed like oh, and right. all this, and then he just kind of looked at me like, "All right, let's go. Where's my pint?" Yeah, yeah. So I got him his pint, and then then you know we had our break, and then the new semester started, and. Uh, We had our first week, and that was kind of orientation with Ben. And then Ben had said, "Uh, I know we don't have a presentation schedule for this term. And at the fourth year level in a political science course, the students are presenting and you're you're having conversations and you're adjudicated on how you you present what you're presenting and the conversation you facilitate afterwards. So Ben said, who wants to go first? And I volunteered right away. I'm like... I, I I broke the ice with this guy. It was pretty funny. He caught he caught me out. I bought him a pint of Guinness. Right. My bad, but I'm gonna throw it back at him and I'm gonna do the first well, presentation. Well, good. I'm gonna get yeah. good. So I did a presentation. I don't remember what it was on. And then afterwards, he, he just he just sort of sat there. And he didn't say anything, and nobody said anything either. And uh, I I just sort of like shrugged my shoulders. Like, are you now what? Like, I can't have a conversation because he's clearly not happy. Right. And the and what he said, I'll never forget. He's like. Everyone, that right there is a perfect example of what I want you to not
2: do in
1: this course. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no.
2: <laughs> That's what happened. It sounds a lot worse when he put it that <laughs> way.
0: <laughs> it, no, it sounds a lot worse
2: when it comes
1: from his mouth.
2: You should have bought him that pint. He was hungover and angry. I was devastated.
1: Yeah. Oh, my God. Well, what, I, did, he, what did he do wrong?
2: I don't, to be honest, I don't even remember. I just winged um, it. I mean, oh, yeah. you didn't have. Yeah, a,
1: oh, yeah okay. I, gotcha. I, yeah.
0: I had made a habit at that point of um, resting on my laurels. I tried harder at the end of my undergrad, but uh, he's a very, very well trained guy, right? Right, and uh, he has, as he says famously, and I've used this term before. I didn't find my PhD in a Cracker Jack box, right? <laughs> I use that term. I have used that on that term in this show and in my work for years and I got it from him.
1: I did find mine actually in a Cracker Jack box. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah, it's yeah. not that Will McCurcher wasn't great.
0: <laughs> it's just yeah. that, uh, you know, Ben was younger and, and is in a very, very uh, focused and specific field of study, right? right? So I was in his wheelhouse and he and he caught me
1: out it was great. <laughs> A very humbling moment. Yeah, no very, doubt. very humbling moment. Yeah. But I, I I do want to come I, I want to kind of bring this back uh, uh somewhat on on to where where your expertise lies, but also just off of that. Um it's just occurred to me that we've been talking about um We've been talking about kind of the, this, the, the role of borders, what a border actually is, things along those lines. And it, it just dawned on me only because I was, I was teaching my, my grade fours about the Anishinaabe, Ojibwe uh, people, and I had to show them kind of where they were. And the map that I showed them, it was the overlay of kind of w- where they would kind of have traveled through, overlaid onto the U.S.-Canadian map. And it dawned on me how strange it would be for these settlers to come in, these colonizers to come in and start pointing at and saying, hey, yeah, this, this exactly here is where this state starts, and this is where this country starts, and now this is a different country, and you have provinces now, and, and by the way, you don't report to me anymore, you report to this person, and this person, and this person. Like, how confusing would this whole divvying up of land be to a first nation culture that quite frankly, just looked at everything like that would be such a confusing issue for them.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so a few things, I mean, what it, that story reminds me of once I was having a conversation with someone and they were kind of contesting my line that borders were so synthetic. And I said, okay, like look at Saskatchewan or Montana. Oh, like, I'm sorry, but like land isn't shaped in boxes.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and I think that's the point, right? That we had um, there's a there's a book called The Conquest of America by uh, um, Todorov. It's it's an excellent book, and part of his argument there is what how it happens is this kind of there is a sort of cultural clash when the settlers arrive um, and indigenous peoples, and it's it's a, actually a cosmological clash. Mm-hmm. It's a, their whole notion of how they perceive the world is so radically different mm-hmm. that that the kind of scientific method versus this incredibly holistic symbolic, ritualistic vision, um, just just don't match up. Mm-hmm. And I mean, he makes an argument about why it is that one of those ends up, you know, quashing the other. But I think you're absolutely right that 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 right now, I think, is a really important conversation to mm-hmm. be had. And I and when I've taken students um, to the Arizona um, Mexico borderlands, uh, we had the opportunity, we were, were lucky enough to be invited on the uh, Tahona Odom Reservation. That's in the southwest part of Arizona, and it actually crosses into Mexico. So the the, the border itself crosses through their reservation. <laughs> Jeez. And uh, yeah, i mean sure so, over. And the, the reservation's about the size of Connecticut, so it's, it's a decent oh, size. Wow, good size reservation. too. Yeah. Um, so I mean, the first thing is you drive out there. You're you know from Tucson, it's about a two and a half hour drive. You're driving on a highway um, later on that's running east to west. Um, but you nevertheless come across a border checkpoint that's manned by U.S. Border Patrol that's asking you questions. And so in, in that sense, you see this is kind of what, like, in the, in our kind of lingo of border studies, we call, like, a bordering practice. There's this thing where, like, they're performing. That's where the the ritual is happening. Okay, I'm okay. not at a border. I haven't crossed a border. I'm driving east-west. I'm going to a reservation. I'm not going to, to Mexico, nor have I come from there. But here it is. I'm encountering um, – a particular uh a border agency and, I, and i'm getting questioned and i'm being asked for papers potentially and so on so there's there's that experience and then you go to the actual reservation and you talk to people and we had an amazing visit but we a couple things we found first is that for a very long time there was no sort of wall there or anything and people crisscrossed the border but of course there's a lot of illegal activity that goes on along that border as well in terms mm-hmm. of trafficking of narcotics, of weapons, and so on. And the folks involved in that quickly realized that one of the least policed areas um, was this reservation. And so that became a space where they would leave a lot of things. And so the local community said, we, we need something to be done about this. Well, the state is what the state does. It threw up a fence. And so, yeah, things couldn't come across as easily. They weren't left there. There wasn't like abandoned cars mm-hmm. and things anymore. But as time goes on, all of a sudden, this gets more heavily securitized, just like every other part of that border. And now you have a high fence. You have gates, then the keys to which are no longer left in the hands of the Native Americans in that area, which they historically were. Mm -hmm. And so now when there are funerals, many of the people actually reside, like come, their history comes from the southern part of the reservation. They actually have to pass their bodies across this fence.
1: Come on! So it's
2: it's an incredible indignity to the people, um, and Border Patrol, rather than patrolling the border, it's patrolling the border of the reserve to an extent, and it's turned inwards. And so there is really, really um, poor relations, particularly between young people on the reservation and Border Patrol. And you just, you have a, a real mess. And I think the, the point is, is that you have, again, clearly multiple. That's a perfect example of the borderland. Yeah, Borderlands are a mess. There's all these different identities and claims and interests and, and rituals and practices and symbols that are all, and suddenly the state rolls in and it wants this kind of certainty. It wants to say like, "Here's the line. Here's the end." As you said, like, measure to the millimeter. Mm-hmm. And there are things about water rights and resource mm-hmm. rights yeah. and all these yeah. other things yeah, yeah, yeah. that are that are w- how that's bound up.
0: Make it black and white when it's inherently gray.
2: Absolutely, and that that you see that like this the the suffering and in a sense you it doesn't seem solvable right. when you're there. You this seems like this is just a mess. And how will you ever get out of this?
1: Yeah, hey, and I I think that's probably where a lot of people are frustrated right now. Eh? Is is just this idea that So many people are frustrated, you know, uh, on the American side. How many times did we hear, I'm so embarrassed uh, with with President Trump, I'm going to move and I'm going to get out of here. Or you hear it a lot in Canada. Oh, man, if this liberal government gets voted in again, I'm going to leave and go down to the states or something something along those lines, right? And you hear that and then you, you realize there's... Okay, but there's the border there, and that border land that you talk about makes all the difference in the world, really, in a situation like that, doesn't it?
0: It's almost like you have to look to the borderland intentionally to see how messy things really are, right? Like you get the one political narrative that comes out of the Trump camp, for example, or another narrative that comes out of the Fox News versus the CNN camp, for example, as another example, I should say, and they they tend to paint these very neat and tidy pictures of what's going on. So uh, what I'm thinking of more specifically is the time when um, the Trump machine was so hot and heavy that they were making these arguments that the, the Mexico-U.S. border <laughs> was a very, very violent place. But we're, in reality, if I'm recalling one of Ben's trips down there with his students, was that it was quite mundane.
2: Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, we went down there, um, I guess it was 2018, and uh, there was supposed to be the caravan. You know, there was all this talk of the caravan going to be Mm -hmm. there. And, you know, when this became like a lot of students wrote about this when we came back, that basically they like, you know, you said like, well, what was something that really struck you while we were there? And a lot of students said, people (laughs) repeatedly saying to us, look around, no caravan. Right. Right. Yeah. That that, that, that this wasn't happening. This kind of, and, you know, this old Polish friend of mine used to always say, things look worse from far away. And I think borders are a great example of that, right? You know, who's pushing that kind of vision of the border as this like lawless, wild place? It's not the people who live there.
1: So, but, but that's your background, right? Like, or that's like, like your, your expertise is, is the security element of, yes. of the borders. Is it done to justify the security or just justify the spending or justify uh, the, the ritual of if you're coming in here, you got to have a, a really mean face to be, a, you know, scare people away and stuff like that? Like w- what is the, the, the catalyst for all of it?
2: Yeah. I think what, what's happening is there's contested notions of what security is. And for me, I would say. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Oh, let's break that one down. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah.
0: That's really interesting. But can we can we break it down just a little bit?
2: Yeah, for sure. I mean, so one of the fields that I that I've kind of been trained in and come from is critical security studies. And if I, you know, the sort of elevator pitch of what that brings to our understanding of security is is that singular point that security is not an objective concept. That it's contested, that you can say something is all about security. I can say something else. We can make persuasive arguments, but it's not naturally only about tanks, guns, and borders, for example. It could potentially not be about that. Or, in fact, and part of the reason that this uh, field emerges after the Cold War is to highlight that many of our conversations and notions of security are, in fact, the opposite. They are actually about insecurity. They are what is dangerous. So the arms race, for example, that was presented as security. But, you know, after the fact, people say, wait a minute, Like being on the brink of a nuclear holocaust, as maybe like we're in a very small way revisiting, isn't actually security. That's radical insecurity. No one feels safe. Mm -hmm. And so I think in Borderlands, That's a really key point when one might say that security means that I can easily visit with my cousin and work on the other side of the border and, you know, be intermarried and have two passports and all these kinds of things, that this can be part of my normal life and allowing that and allowing commerce to flow, that this is security. But a different notion of security that does a lot of othering, so where you're constantly framing the, the folks on the other side not as part of your borderland but if going back to that town you know if you say like look i know you meet ethel all the time for for tea but remember she's american she's got a different flag outside her house she's got a different president she's got a, lives in a completely different political system they don't believe in the same things we do if you continually start to do that you somehow, all of a sudden there's this kind of mistrust and danger that develops between those. And I would argue that's actually insecurity, but that has been by and large how the border and how, when we think border security, that's what it's been all about. It's been about basically doing a violence to the borderland by saying, those folks are different than you, watch out. And sometimes it's easy because they happen to look a bit different. So then, then the state's job is a lot easier. You know, sometimes there, there's, it's a bit more challenging. So you look in that town, it's a challenging job. They've got to do a lot. they got to put lots of big buildings up. they got to drive a lot of crazy-looking cars, put paramilitary garb on people, make it look like something's going on because nobody really buys it. Um, whereas in other places, well, people already are kind of halfway there because of maybe popular media and a whole variety of other things that are already presenting that story.
0: What a, what a crazy predicament, you know, to have a government and its, you know, related third parties, the private sector companies that we've been seeing increasingly participate in border practices come along and present security as a thing that makes people safe when it is, in fact, the thing that can make things extremely unsafe. And so before I derailed your explanation, when Al asked this really great question, like, why do this? A lot of this, I think, comes down to what? Like entertainment? Money? What the hell, does the border mean when you were teaching the borders when you first came out to King's and even before that, when you were at SFU on the west coast? Um, you, you would tell these students a story about like the border after 9 11 that that changed fundamentally the way that town interacted with, with itself, and, and a lot of the impetus for that was you know this uh, perceived need to protect the population against the terrorist that's hiding in the bush, when in fact. You know the state of Washington. Seventy percent of that state, within a few years, was employed entirely by the war on terror. So there's this huge impetus to make money off of this, keep people employed. The military-industrial complex, mm-hmm. as it were, keeps people employed. Is that very much the case now? Like, would you go into your classroom and have that same conversation with students? Would you say that, uh, you know, the the way we understand the border is by looking at these kinds of confusing areas? Because when you look at them, you see the state wanting to make money.
2: I, you know what? I, I would in some ways. Um, so I, I would, I mean, Todd Miller, who's written some great books, um, one of which called The Empire of Borders, talks about the border industrial complex. So there, there's a lot of money. There's to a do. turn. There, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of money to be made in border security of that brand. Right. Um, and, and I mean, that's where it gets in when you get into a borderland, particularly like a borderland I'm familiar with, the kind of Sonoran desert borderland of, of uh, Arizona and uh, and uh, Sonora. You know, you you find that those a lot of those companies are growing. They're some of the largest employers in those areas who actually do sell border security technologies, um, surveillance technologies, you know, building drones for monitoring the border and so on. And a lot of the people who work for those corporations were from Mexico, crossed the border on a daily basis, were hassled when they crossed the border on a daily basis to go to the University of Arizona, get an engineering degree, and now they're working for Raytheon securitizing the border.
1: <laughs> and I, and
2: I often I often just, you know, when when people like when my students are talking I tell them that and I say, like, for me, I that is always like I sit there constantly and I just I don't know, I don't know kind of how to how to get through that, how, how to make sense of that fully. Mm-hmm. But I think part of the point is, again, it's showing us that as much as we can say the border synthetic, blah, 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 it has a lot of power because yeah. it shows you there that even in that situation, the border kind of comes, it rises to the top somehow. Yeah, And in spite of the fact that these individuals, they would classify themselves as borderland dwellers, as part of a borderland culture, and they're producing technologies that are effectively strengthening that notion of the border as a limit, as a line. We,
1: we even we even refer to towns in around, like in the minute you say it's a border town. Yeah. You, you picture in your mind a, a, a certain, you know. Oh, sure. A, a certain image, right? Sicario yeah. or something. Yeah, exactly. Exa- <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't call Windsor that bad, but yes, all right. If you want to throw it down, go ahead there, Doc. What?
0: <laughs> I mentioned uh, at the beginning of our chat that. Uh, one one of there are many occasions that, that kind of bring this conversation together, and I, I think having this this driving question that asks what the hell does a border even mean anymore is really significant because I'm sure you felt when you first started researching and teaching Ben that it's, this is a difficult thing to explain. It's already confusing. Mm-hmm. It's it's inherently confusing. There's so much grayness in the border. It seems like an act that tries to make that gray go away, to make it as black and white as possible. And so I'm I'm curious. We're, we're over a month now, well over a month now of the war in Ukraine. As a, as a professor of thinking critically and studying borders critically, what goes through your mind, man?
2: <laughs> a, a lot. Yeah. The, 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 the people who live with me suffer. Yeah. Yeah. So, so this is where we say, stay tuned for part two of our discussion. With... <laughs> yeah, I think, I mean, the first thing I'd say is that all of this, I'm attracted to the the fact that this is a hard nut to crack, um, that that this is like unclear, that it's that there isn't an obvious answer, that it's it's always this really really murky messy space, and I think a, a situation like what's happening um, with Ukraine and and a lot of the borders um, of of Eastern European states is, you know, obviously there's there's catastrophic things happening, but from a teaching standpoint, there's much again to to put out there to students and say, like, think about what's happening here and why it's happening in these ways. You think about something like the Polish border. It wasn't that long ago, Christmas time. People were freezing to death in the forest along the Belarus-Polish border. Um, Poland had been, you know, completely militarized effectively that border. Um, They had put up layers of razor wire. There was a variety of kind of electronic informational fences if you will um, migrants are receiving messages on their phones telling them to go away to turn around that there was no welcome for them there hungary did very much the same um, uh, to some of its borders as well particularly um, um, towards uh, its, the, the south and so a lot of these states were very closed were militarizing their borders and then suddenly we have a war in the ukraine and, and what are we seeing in the news? The welcoming dimensions of these borders. Now, the, the other parts of those borders are still functioning right now. So it's not as if somehow like they just took all the barbed wire down and said, okay, uh, let's turn a page. Our borders are now open. No, those borders are still very militarized and very closed. There are other borders where what we see on the news, somebody in, you know, a military uniform picking up a baby and getting people on a bus and people, you know, meeting at train stations. I've got room in my home and so on. And I think in that sense, to try to think through the, the, the absurdity, in a sense, of a border, looking at that is a, is a great thing to try and think about what exactly is happening there why is it that this is happening? Why is it that, you know, I, I thought about it today. I, you know, for a while there, everybody, not everybody, some interesting folks that I would see driving around with Canadian flags, um, on their vehicles. And, and you, you kind not of. Just <laughs> a, hey,
1: not just a Canadian flag, but it has to be a Canadian flag on a hockey stick. Right. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. There's not. Yeah.
2: yeah. So, you know, you had some of that. And then today it struck me because I saw someone with like a similar sort of vehicle, let's just put it that way. And there was a Ukrainian flag on, on it. And I thought that was really interesting. I mean, I've been someone who like the first course I took that made me take political science and sociology and go the direction I did was on nationalism. Hmm. I've always been fascinated by that and, and in a sense, deeply troubled by the power that that has. And, and I thought, look at that. Isn't that interesting? Because how many, like, how likely do you think it would be that that individual would fly a Libyan flag? True. Yeah. <laughs>
1: no, that's a, what a great. But, yeah. Or the
2: or a huge list. Right. Well, but, of but, all sorts of other places. Can, can I can I be a little bit. Can I say ass.
1: <laughs> can I say that? Can I be a little bit ass here? So. My oh, house uh, is a safe place. Yeah, I, I'm, yeah, I, or and I wanna, or, or but, it was. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but I want to I want to make sure that I that I say this in, in in as as friendly of a way as possible. But I don't believe for half a second, three quarters of the people that are flying a Ukrainian flag understand the politics, the background, even know somebody from Ukraine. I feel like it's kind of almost become at times like, uh, oh. This is the Canadian thing to do is to show support for Ukraine without really knowing what's going on. Would I be totally daft in thinking that or suggesting that? And isn't there a danger in kind of just following the lead in something like that without doing critical things? I, I, I don't think so. I, I think to to a small extent,
0: per, perhaps even a medium extent, a middle extent, <laughs> flying Ukraine flag is kind of throwing it back in the face of the people flying a Canadian flag. I wouldn't fly a Canadian flag right now. No. Mm, yeah. F- no, I wouldn't. Mm-hmm. Right. Residential schools, mm-hmm. top of the list. Mm-hmm. What happened in Ottawa, right up there, number two. Mm-hmm. Why would I be proud to fly a Canadian flag? Mm-hmm. Now, this is sort of skirting, you know, like the deeply troubling thing that, that would interest our friend Ben here. Right, right. right? Uh, it, it's a lie in, in flying a flag, but I don't think you're off base. No. I don't know. What do you think, Ben?
2: Yeah, no, I I think definitely there's a dimension of that. And I mean, that's how nationalism works. Mm-hmm. I mean, you think everybody who flies in America, I mean, you go into small town America and right. everybody's got an American flag. Because freedom. But yeah. But I mean, are, are they all like have intimate knowledge of the founding fathers and their ideas and so on? Like, of course, we all know that that's not true. Mm-hmm. And, and so, I mean, that's kind of the beauty of it in a sense of, of nationalism is, and I mean, that's the beauty in a sense of sovereignty. It's simple and elegant, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's supposed to for us solve a problem, right? For hundreds of years, basically, there's constant warfare in Europe. How the hell are we going to stop this? How do we, you know, because right. and why did, why do they war? Well, because they're evil, like they're infidels, whatever, like the Protestants, the Catholics, everybody, you know, they all got to kill each other because they're, they're all going to go to hell. And so this is going to get them <laughs> who, there faster. Who has more
0: Nazis yeah. than the other country? And, yeah.
2: and, you know, and so at a certain point, they're like, hey, we can solve this sovereignty. It'll be easy. We'll draw borders. What you do inside, you're allowed to do whatever you want. It's only like when the border... That's this the line, that's the limit. So you can't go go around telling each other what to do and so it's but the problem is as we're as we've seen for many for for decades, if not longer, it hasn't lived up to its billing yeah um you know it's given us a different array of problems, arguably some of which are are as nastier and nastier right um and so like I would agree with you in that sense that yeah, this it's not as if somehow that person's meaning, but my point is that, they are on a bandwagon, but we didn't have those other bandwagons. Like, where was the Syrian flag bandwagon when there was a huge, you know, even Canada was involved in accepting large numbers of refugees from do, Syria. Do, but I didn't see Syrian flags everywhere.
1: No, do, do, and, and do you know what's so fascinating about that is I don't I, – I, I, was, I was on the air when all of a sudden people started saying we need to take in Syrian refugees, which was such a far cry – from what we had heard weeks before, and I—I I mean, and, and this is—it still burned in my mind as probably in—and in, you know—in—in in radio, you have to have a lot of a lot of really unfair and emotional sights and sounds, right? And I, it still burned in that I remember somebody from a news agency throwing over the picture of Alan Curdy's body being pulled out—the drowned five-year-old boy—uh—being being pulled out. And it was that picture that had everybody finally say, "Oh, now I get what this is about. Okay, we can start opening up our doors to Syria." But before that, it was kind of like in your mind, just to your point, it was kind of like, "Oh, no, 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 no! I know Syrians. They're the Muslims, and and they're the the radicals, and they're the we can't have them in our place and everything." Um, and and so I, I totally agree with you that I don't think you know I don't know if it's as, as strong, you can call it racism or simply ignorance or, uh, uh, simply kind of, we, we tend to, as, as, you know, uh, Canadians, we tend to see ourselves one way and only want to help out people that see, see the same people. I know, uh, the church that I attend, uh, the, the priests got blowback from a lot of Catholics because they sponsored a Syrian family and they're like, but they're Muslims. Why would we sponsor them? I said, well, you know, we're all, in the same boat here, like guy's like, let's, let's, you know, um, but, and, and I think, I think that there's a lot to that. Um, but, but you're right. Like it, it is upsetting to look and say, all right, so how did we all of a sudden say Ukraine, the borders around Ukraine make it safe for us in Canada, whereas the borders around Syria make us not want to allow them in and stuff like that. Have you been able to figure anything like that out Was as to what it is that, that made us say, Ukraine, I'm going to fly a flag, show my support. Syria, ooh, not so fast.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, I think there's a few things going on there. I mean, one of which, and this has always been an important dimension of, of kind of border politics in a way, has been the power of diaspora communities. So, you know, when communities end up leaving uh, a country and they go elsewhere, but they remain engaged in their home culture and home politics and so on. Right. So, you know, when when I lived in Northern Ireland, I never forget the first year I was there for St. Patrick's Day. I asked someone, you know, where's the best place to go for St. Patrick's Day? Where should I go? (laughs) And they said, Boston. (laughs) and I was like oh like I'm finally living in Ireland and your answer is to get back on the plane and go and and I mean that's the point because like you know in many ways in terms of like finances in terms of political support for what went on in in Ireland for many years to understand that you actually had to go to the United States Mm. and I think like the size and and even political level of political engagement of the Ukrainian diaspora community in Canada is relevant to this. Yeah. It definitely is. I mean in the in the prairies they are a sizable population for many years in the build, the building quote unquote of Canada when we were trying to settle and move um, indigenous peoples off their land and take it from them and you know with people out there tilling the land in inhospitable climates where did we go? We went to the Ukraine. Said, mm-hmm. hey, this is a pretty inhospitable place. Yeah. You probably do well living over here. So come on over. And so we invited those people here at the turn of the 20th century. And so I think like all of that is part of that story. You know, right. you, you have to, I, I think those are really important dimensions. And I think they're important dimensions when we when we maybe understand or want to problematize borders as well, because it highlights for us that like the border isn't where it's supposed to be. It's not that line down. So in other words, like if you want to understand what's what going on with Canada and the Ukraine right now and Canada in NATO, you need to go to Winnipeg. You don't need to go to Brussels. You don't need to go to Kiev. Right. Right. Yeah. And it's a it's a similar thing. Like, you know, you want to understand like why did the troubles sustain for so long in Northern Ireland, you need to go to Boston. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like why is it that, you know, the United States has, you know, all these, you know, kind of issues with Cuba that are so prolonged? Well, I mean, if you really want to understand them, you go to Miami. Like the these are important dimensions, you know. Why has Canada been so involved in Haiti for a long time? Why are Haitians arriving? you know, an area of the Canada-US border and skirting the third country national legislation because Canada has been involved with Haiti for so long. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I think those all show us the messiness. And I think now increasingly when we think about the migrant patterns and what's going on in Ukraine, when we think about refugees coming from Syria, for me increasingly when we want to understand borders and migration, we need to look in cities that's where that's that's where this is all actually happening the border is it, it the border is a ritual mm-hmm. the border is a great big wall but guess what happens at that wall actually not a whole hell of a lot some contractors make a lot of money and build this wall <laughs> it has really awful impacts on the migratory patterns of a number of animals has some some really devastating impact on them but in terms of humans and what the border means and what's going on with migration it's that really got nothing to say in that. Mm-hmm. Those stories are happening in in Tucson, in New York, in Seattle, in Toronto, and how these cities are responding and the same thing right now. You know, we're seeing that. I mean, where if we want to understand what's going on with uh, refugees in Ukraine and so on, I mean, we go to Berlin, we go to Warsaw, we go to these places, and that that's where it's happening. Mm-hmm. At the border is a photo op for the nightly news.
1: Mm-hmm. You know,
2: some soldier grabbing a kid out of a bus but that's not actually the 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 work of of what's happening and i think that's where like something like borderland is a much more useful contact uh, concepts because it's got that bundle of issues that I, we need to think about
1: and, and tommy i know i know i've been grilling questions but this this to me like you you guys have worked together uh, and so kind of have an idea of how each other think, whereas I'm such a noob into this and I find the whole idea just so, so fascinating. So I'm sorry if I'm stepping on your toes so much there, Dr. Tommy, but um, I, I, I do want to, I do want to, I, I do want to ask about safety because, and I, and again, I want to make sure that I phrase this properly. When Syria was going through their mass immigration, when, 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 people were trying to get out as much as possible. And uh, for, for every reason that was reasonable um, and Canada was opening up their borders and immediately it was, that's not safe. That's not safe. you know who could be coming is the next nine 11 could be coming right through. You can't be doing this. You can't be doing this. There were some border analysts that agreed and said, we're not doing a good enough job making this, making this. And people like myself, ignorance was bliss, right? We said, that's, no, no, people are wonderful and we'll let them in and no problem. And, and, and yay, we're going to, we're going to sponsor these people and it's going to be great. I can't help but think about what's going on. I mean, I mean, we're looking at, at, you know, the, the biggest mis, uh, uh, misplacement since World War II for crying out loud, right? Is there a real threat that the Ne'er Do Wells are sneaking in over the border into Poland right now? Uh, is there a real threat? Is that even a real discussion, or is that all hyperbole and hearsay?
2: Yeah, it's th- this is always my least favorite. I know, and you knew it was question. coming. You knew it was coming. <laughs> um, but but Doc. I do and I always yeah. get it, and it's fine. You know, when you were t- the first thing I thought of when you were talking. The New York Times did a pretty decent job about maybe it was about three weeks ago. Um, of an article comparing what was going on in the Polish border and saying, like, here's your border with Belarus and here's the border with Ukraine and we these radically different things. And one of the last lines of the article is an elderly woman in Poland and, you know, when they say, like, "What's why this radically different approach to dealing with, you know, asylum seekers from one place and from another. And she says, I wouldn't know what to cook for them. And... I think that's actually like way more important than we
1: think. I I mean, what a beautifully profound way of of synopsizing it. eh? Yeah.
2: I mean, basically, this this is like what, like if you want to go deep into like some intense and really rich academic literature, people would talk about imagined geographies. This idea that, you know, you think about the places that most of the folks you know have been or where they know folks from and what's familiar to them. Well, like, you know, it turns out Kiev kind of looks like some of those places. Mm. And the people, you know, their, their cultural practices and so on, they don't seem that foreign. When we see people on TV, they're wearing clothes that, you know, some might be a bit different, but there's similarities. They're at the shopping mall. They, the cities look like cities in Eastern Europe. They all look very recognizable. If you tell, you know, walk around at, at your place of work and say, how many of you have been to Aleppo? in Syria probably not many right unless they're from yeah the level. <laughs> and then ask them like do they know anyone from there probably probably not right and i think that that's a key part of of what's going on in terms of our response to to different groups and our notion that somehow the danger comes from the unknown
1: so it's not an actual threat nobody uh, if i'm understanding correctly it's not that that people actually felt that a Syrian is going to come in and become a radical Muslim and bomb us. And that was going to be a, a terrible thing. It was more along the lines of they're going to come. I don't know what to talk to this guy, but I don't want them here because it's going to be inconvenient for
2: me. Well, I would say actually one leads to the other. Okay. The fact by not knowing in any way and knowing in this kind of rich sense, by no, not knowing the other, not, know, not having a sense and like a respect in that knowing that as a result, one can quickly fall prey to those other kind of Mm. narratives. And if you think about it, I mean, how many films and, you know, TV shows and so on depict, you know, Ukrainian terrorists doing nasty things to Washington? (laughs) But how many have, like, you know, basically an Arab of some description? And again, it's classic... Edward Said, who came up with the site, you know, who's a a professor of comparative literature, who came up with this concept of Orientalism that was talking about the stereotyping and othering of those from the, the Middle East and the Arab world. And I mean, that is like just everywhere in our society and has been for a very long time. Having said all that, it doesn't mean that what I'm saying is there is no notion of threat when you allow large numbers of asylum seekers in that you should say, there's absolutely nothing to worry about. Everyone means well. That would be absurd to say in any context. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, I think you always, you know, have to do your due diligence. But due diligence and, you know, what we could say, like what what somebody like like a writer, Alison Mounts, calls the death of asylum, basically saying you increasingly create policies where people can't even claim it mm-hmm. because you, you know send them text messages on their phones while they're walking to your border or you send ships out to stop them before they enter your territorial waters or doing all these things that's a whole other thing that's not due due diligence at all Mm -hmm. um so i think i think you're spot on with all of it in a sense and it's all very messy and the problem is like a lot of these issues these are too complex for uh two and a half minutes on the news at night. Oh, gosh.
1: Trust me, when I was a newscaster, that, that used to be the one big thing that, that, that always kept, killed me was, all right, uh, uh, here's what's going on in Syria. You have 30 seconds. What You want me to do what now? You've got 30 seconds to put this in yeah. the news. Yeah, well, and
2: exactly. And so what are you going to talk about? Are you going to talk about, you know, the new school that just opened? You know, are you going to talk about the way in which Hezbollah is actually like been, you know, the most, um, you know, effective actor at reconstruction and rebuilding schools and providing, you know, health care and money for people after, you know, the war with Israel? no. That's the, You know, you don't have time for that because then people are like, what Hezbollah? Like, I thought they were terrorists. What's yeah, going on? What did, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you have no time for all of that. And so all of a sudden, like everything, it, it's way easier to just, you know, keep playing the notes that people already know. Right. Otherwise, they think you hit a wrong key.
1: Well, and, and who who was it uh, back when I had the show on CJBK uh, and and we had the Syrian expert on? I And I've totally forgotten his name. I don't Brilliant remember. His, guy
0: Oh, um, so two, two names came to mind when you when you said that. It was either the the director of UNHCR or it was the the director of uh, the Islamic Centre for Ontario, wasn't it?
1: I, mean, I, I I want to say it was one of your university professor buddies that was coming in for a lecture or something like that. Him? But no, no, I would know if it was Doc. Ben? Ben? You mean Ryan. this guy? It no, it, no, no, no. It was was another, it Sam Rupert? It
2: might have been Sam Yes, Sam yeah, that's who it is. Okay. That's who it
1: was, yeah. And I remember, it, like, having like three or four conversations leading up to it and every single one of them was met with another angry phone caller saying that guy's an idiot I'm like actually he's pretty smart I I think he knows what's going on in Syria (laughs) right but but I think yeah like I think that there's kind of like you said you, you know just this refusal no that's I don't get it so I'm not going to get it so I hate them right and then it just grows from there right
0: yeah there's, there's some real racial undertones that are, you know, obviously coming out as we're talking about this sort of thing. I think Ben hit the nail on the head when he said that, you know, Kiev looks like a mm. lot of place around here.
1: I just, I just love that quote, that quote of, I wouldn't know what to cook for them. Like that, that, that is the epitome of, I think what. You know, it's it's symbolic and it's also it's also literal, right? With what it is.
2: Yeah, and I think there's something to the fact that when you read that and you read that and you you see like, okay, this is like an elderly woman who's like opened her home to some Ukrainian people. Like the first thing you don't think when you read that statement is what a racist old lady, right? In a sense, it's true, but but the point is why? And, and I think part of my point is it's at the border. Borders are racist, like by definition. That's what they're about. And so of course she is, but you don't you you can't say that because that's like here, she's actually showing hospitality. Right. She's but one could argue that actually what is needed is radical hospitality, being hospitable to the people you're a bit uncomfortable with. Right. And that's really hard when you have something like a border. I mean, the, uh, a colleague of mine, Reese Jones, has just written a book called White Borders, and it's about the history of the U- U.S. border. You know, the the extent to which b- the border and what it has been all about has been about racism f- since forever is actually a super easy story to tell. That That is, I can't you know? believe,
1: like, that's one of those things, you know, you ever have that Damn it! Why didn't I think of that? That's so blatantly I, I've obvious. I've had that. <laughs> we, but we've had this.
0: We've had that moment in every guest that we've had. I on. know. And and this is that moment happening again.
1: Really, what I've, we're saying is, you're not that smart. <laughs> That's okay.
0: <laughs>
2: That's you are not the first to say that. So you know that you don't you don't get that one cornered.
0: <laughs> I, I. But I'm I'm grateful that we can come away from this, uh, recognizing that we've been able to make this connection, and I wouldn't call it a clarity. I wouldn't call it a, a, a making a, a you know, a line between two dots to walk away from a conversation like this and say, I learned something new. It's 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 for me, it's we've learned even more how freaking confusing the, the borders are in a world that around borders that is inherently gray, border practices and bordering and trying to put up a wall tries to make that go away and it just doesn't simply work like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I know that we're going to continue to talk and continue to check in with Ben as time presses forward. I'm still really interested in uh, seeing how you're going to teach after your sabbatical borders starting up next year. I'm really interested to see what's going to be different from the time that you started introducing the concept of the messiness of borders to your students through the, you know, the anecdote from the beginning of our conversation about that quaint little town that had a wall or a line running through it. I'm sure it's going to change again. And I'm sure it's going to change again over and over and over as, as time progresses. And uh, I hope we can get you back on to talk about that, Ben. That would be really great.
2: Mm-hmm. I'd lo- I'd love to come back. I'm launching a new Migration and Border Studies program in the fall. So... Lots of things will be Perfect. different oh about how I God. teach. So. Lots
1: of more confusion. <laughs> oh, You're going to need another sabbatical just to figure that out <laughs> next year, man.
2: Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll try to push that argument too. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to another episode
1: of What's That Noise? If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you have a topic or guest in mind, don't hesitate to get in touch at WTN. Stay tuned for bi-weekly episodes and until next time,
2: keep listening to the noise.